Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Oliker, and I'm speaking to you from my home office in still lockdown Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, also coming to you from Belgium. And today we are really excited to be speaking with Dr. Erica Marat. Erica is a professor at the National Defense University, as she specializes in security sectors in former Soviet countries and really security sector issues globally. She She's the author of the book, The Politics of Police Reform, Society Against the State in Post-Soviet Countries. And she's going to talk to us about Central Asia, about protests, and about police. So Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to be here with you. So I'm going to start off by asking you, we're living in a world where protests seem to be everywhere. There are protesters breaking into government buildings in the United States. There are protesters getting arrested on the streets of Moscow. And in Central Asia, there has been more protest in just the last few years than there had been in a long time. Is this local and just coincidence or is there something global going on? There is definitely a global theme here. Um, although the type of grievances in every context is different, what's happening in Moscow can't be really compared with, to what's happening in Washington, D.C., what happened on January 6th, for instance. But it does show a growing divide between what the public expects and what the politicians deliver. And also, on the other hand, the growing importance of populist politics. So in Moscow and in parts of Central Asia, we see that the general public and especially younger population, they don't see themselves represented in Putin's Russia, and they may support Navalny, or they just may support the idea of political change in Russia, and that's what prompts them to join collective action. So in Kyrgyzstan, what we saw since October, and that's somewhat compatible with (laughs) developments in Washington, D.C. since elections in the United States, that the public is supporting a populist leader, a leader that promises them to solve their problems, to value them as individuals against other members of the community. And in Kyrgyzstan, we saw the rise of nationalist leader uh, Japarov, who jumped out of prison to presidency by promising basically to save the country from its economic despair, political divisions, and kind of serve as this uh, messiah that can make the future brighter, make Kyrgyzstan a wonderful place again. Does that make Kyrgyzstan great again? You've talked about a, a Kyrgyz Trump. Is that really the case? That's really the case. That's really the case, how he is able to build on the grievances and on the sentiments of the ethnic majority by constructing some kind of external enemy and internal enemy, very abstract, but messaging on the one hand the population that feels economic despair, not least because of the pandemic that hit really hard Kyrgyzstan, but also being able to co-opt corrupt political elites into his government. So this, you know, two-pronged approach, on the one hand, delivering to economically disenfranchised population 
um, or you know, promising, over-promising economic prosperity to groups of population in Kyrgyzstan. And on the other hand, co-opting political elites who care about being <laughs> part of the state to hold on power, to be able to continue self-enrichment and receive protections from the state. So there are similarities in that as well. And at Kyrgyzstan today, just like United States, and I think other countries in the world with populist leaders, you know, Brazil, India, Hungary, there are deep divides in the society, a very vocal minority supports the populist leader, but then there is a majority of people who are so skeptical and sometimes feel powerless against the leader. And that drives protest dynamics as well in Kyrgyzstan. So that's really interesting. And then the other thing I see when I look at all of these protest movements in Belarus, in Russia, in Kyrgyzstan, in Kazakhstan in the United States is you have varying kinds of police response and a lot of discussion about that police response and what's appropriate and what's not. And I know this is something you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about. So can you talk a little bit about what drives different kinds of police responses and how you would characterize uh, this shakes out? Yeah, the through line across those contexts, so United States, uh, Russia, uh, Central Asia, is that police channel the dominant political views through their actions. So if you compare the way protests for racial justice have been policed last summer 2020, and then also with how the capital attacks took place with police not really deploying this harsh methods like in summer 2020, it is a representation of how the dominant political class in the country sees what's appropriate and what's not appropriate behavior, what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, same in Russia, we see through the actions of police in Russia or Belarus, who really is in charge of that country. And it's a more clear cut process. You know, we're not talking about subtle racial or not so subtle racial divisions. It is basically the incumbent who is able to deploy police to protect his regime from the public. And what we see in the way that police handled protests in Russia after Navalny was jailed is through arrests, targeted arrests, and also a typical method deployed by authoritarian regimes is trying to marginalize and present a radical idea of those protesters to the broader public that didn't protest and try to win the hearts and minds of the broader public as opposed to those who come on the streets. We'll see to what extent they'll be able to do that. So far, Putin's regime has been successful in radicalizing and presenting, kind of memifying, you know, uh, presenting or ridiculing protesters because the numbers were usually not as high as in January 2021. I think Putin's regime is now really thinking about how to best deal with the growing protest dynamics that old tactics may not be as successful. And in Central Asia, all of the dynamics we've seen in Kyrgyzstan, you had the overthrow of a government in Kazakhstan, not so much, but definitely frustration and people coming out. What's going on there? Kazakhstan being an authoritarian regime, very similar to Russia, that whenever there is outbreak of protest, the government may concede something and try to meet some of the demands of protesting public, for instance, when uh, mothers with many children 
protested in February 2019 after a fire in Nur Sultan or Astana. At that time, took lives of five children, five girls uh, in one family, overworked family, and parents were not at home. So it was a huge tragedy. And mostly mothers came out and protested, demanding uh, expansion of welfare, support of families. So, and that's when President Nazarbayev ousted his government and reappointed the entire government and made some concessions to the protests. But this was more of an exception to the dynamics where, again, Nazarbayev being an autocrat and now Tokayev, they again try to win the hearts and minds of the majority of population as opposed to trying to meet the protesting public somewhere halfway or try to negotiate or yeah, respond to their grievances. And that leads to, on the one hand, information campaigns in the population and on the other hand, suppression of uh, activist networks. Erica, you've talked a great deal about commonalities in what's driving the protests, a sense of inequality and an autocratic tendency in many of the countries you're talking about. Are you actually seeing them all in the same basket? It seems very different what's happening in Kyrgyzstan to what might be happening in Turkmenistan. Yeah, absolutely. And I would argue that even in autocratic context, there is constant adaption. There's constant changing of tactics in how to respond to protesters. And sometimes that involves trying to negotiate. There are limits to authoritarianism, let me say that. But regime type really matters in how governments respond to uh, protests, how police respond to protests. So in more democratic countries like Kyrgyzstan or Ukraine, there is more of a discussion, follow-up discussion in the public about what protests meant. And the government really can't or is not willing to suppress those discussions. For instance, the protests by feminist groups in in Kyrgyzstan, in Bishkek, or in Kiev, uh, Ukraine, that advocate for better policing of domestic violence, of gender violence. And those protests are common, and sometimes they're suppressed, sometimes they take place without any obstruction by the state. But in more autocratic countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Russia, any protest is seen, any collective action is seen as a direct challenge to political regime, uh, be that a protest against Putin and in support of Navalny, or for welfare issues like pension reform or any type of social policy, they're seen as a direct threat and political critique of the regime and of the incumbent. And there is more effort to suppress this kind of collective action in autocratic countries. Yeah, but then because there is more space to maneuver in more democratic context, we see both in Kyrgyzstan and Ukraine and also in more democratic countries like Armenia and Georgia, we see new protest movements emerging for the rights of LGBTQ communities. There is more space for advocating for different types of marginalized groups. And also more politically permissive space allows for the emergence of what we call uncivil society or vigilante groups that see that, you know, that are discontent with the changes in the society and they want to reestablish patriarchal norms, autocratic norms. And that usually has to do with gender issues, gender identities, ethnic identity, and so on. And Kyrgyzstan and Ukraine have those in the public space quite visibly. War and Peace. 
a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we are speaking with Professor Erica Marat of National Defense University about protests, police response, and Central Asia. So you've studied also how these police forces evolve, and in the Central Asian environment, they all come out of this Soviet policing model. Can you talk a little bit about how that manifests in how we see them responding both to protesters and, well, to crime today? Right. So the Soviet model of policing was quite unique, even in the global context, the way it was built to be loyal and supportive of the political regime in the Soviet Union, and at the same time, have a broad reach across all corners of the Soviet Union and perform a broad range of functions as well in the society, from law enforcement to propaganda. So these legacies, they persist still across former Soviet space, less so, of course, in Baltic states and more so in more autocratic states. And the new regimes, they built on the legacies of this militarized, politically loyal institution and readapted them to the needs of their own regimes. When we see how police respond to protests, especially to early protests, um, let's say in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan in 2000s and in Kazakhstan in 2011, they resorted to really violent means of suppressing civilians. They used um, firearms, and that resulted in casualties, both in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. And that was really a legacy of the Soviet regime, but that was then readapted by new governments. Now, the governments, even, again, even the most autocratic ones, they try to transform post-Soviet police and how it respond to protests by borrowing tactics from around the world of peaceful treatment of protesters. And that's not because political incumbents are necessarily concerned with civilian lives during protests. Of course, that could play a role, but it's not necessarily just the driving force. One of the important incentives in learning new tactics of uh, treating protests and different types of collective action through more peaceful means, let's say targeted arrests or breaking crowds, uh, using tear gas, is to avoid backfire of protests. Because when government uh, uses too much violence on peaceful protests, and if the grievances of the protesters are shared by the wider population, there is a risk that that more people may join the protest movement. And we saw this dynamics take place in, for instance, Ukraine in Euromaidan, when Yanukovych miscalculated the use of violence against the very first protesters, Uh, mostly students, young people, a small group of people who stayed overnight in central Kiev, and they beat them up. There was some bloodshed, uh, there were injuries, and that basically turned bigger public, broader public into action against not only the immediate grievance of Ukraine becoming closer with the European Union, but just the suppressive apparatus of his regime. Another big theme of what we work over the last uh, decade in Crisis Group is this, this idea of radicalization, which I know is a word that's disputed, but I think in the Soviet, ex-Soviet context is used. And the idea that many more people went from Central Asia to the battlefields in the Middle East and joined up with Islamic State. And then that there was a particularly unique series of uh, rehabilitations and, and reabsorption 
absorptions of these people. Can you just say how your findings and your, all your research relate to that? I mean, does the Islamic State story fit into everything you've been saying already? It does and it doesn't. So it does relate to the story of policing and public grievances in Central Asia and how Many Central Asians joined ISIS. They joined not necessarily to fight Assad regime you know, or to build an Islamic state, unlike, for instance, foreign fighters from the Middle East. But they joined ISIS for economic opportunities as a way of finding employment within ISIS territory, but also to a large extent because they felt like this is the place where they could exercise their religious rights more freely compared to Central Asia. And we know that entire families left with children and parents, not as uh, tried to be you know, combatants, although there, were, there was that contingent as well. And that also included some defected security officials from Tajikistan, mostly, who joined ISIS as combatants. But Central Asians did join this idea of being able to exercise their religious rights that often suppressed in Central Asia by governments to be able to freely exercise them on the territory of ISIS. Now, the repatriation process differs across the region, and the most successful example has been Kazakhstan, that they repatriated many, especially women and children, and they try to rehabilitate them and reintegrate them into the society, and there is a, quite a systemic approach to that. And it's fairly open process as well. There is a lot of reporting on those efforts in Kazakhstan, which is great. And Kazakhstan needs to be praised for that. It's a little more opaque process in Uzbekistan on how repatriation is taking place, especially of males who joined ISIS and who are returning. It's less contentious when it comes to women and children. And Tajikistan is an entirely different story. There is literally almost no information on that. And perhaps Tajikistan is not even accepting any returnees. Do these countries have something to teach the world about this? Because Europe, for instance, is exceedingly reluctant to follow this path. Um, I think Kazakhstan has something to teach other countries in how multifaceted the discussion has been, dynamic discussion, that discussions based on gender identity. You know, how do we view women who joined ISIS and still may be loyal to ISIS or share some of their ideals? You know, how do we allow agency to those who still sympathetic but yet returned to their homeland. The discussions have been fascinating and it shows that a country that is not as uh, democratic and politically vibrant as Europe can still have those discussions and there's nothing and can be accepting of its citizens who once left and now coming back. I mean, I think that's really interesting. And the other kind of question it raises is, the simplistic view of everything that goes on really in most of the world is whether it's pro-Western or pro-somebody else, right? Be that Russian or Chinese or I don't know what else, but uh, not, not Western. And you're talking about something that seems a lot more complicated, right? When we're talking about the protests, you haven't talked about their burning desire of the Kyrgyz to join NATO. You've talked about grievances that are much closer to home. When we talk about returning fighters and returning families from Syria, you're talking about a debate that goes on in a very autocratic state. Do you think this is a geostrategic story or do you think this is a local story that people try to make geostrategic? Yeah, those are all local stories, of course. Those are all local grievances to everyday conditions, which the majority of public uh, experiences. 
And they are often portrayed by political leaders as somehow geopolitical, somehow inspired by the West, let's say, whenever they see political opponents gathering crowds like Putin, it's easy to create this narrative of external enemy interfering in domestic affairs. But of course, those are all local grievances. And what we also see now in Eurasia, I think, is that there's borrowing of tactics from across the world of tactics of protest. And some inspiration can come from BLM protests, but then also there were Hong Kong protests, how they used umbrellas and protect themselves from tear gas. And all those experiences now, because they're widely covered and readily available to activists, they're being shared between activists before they gather in collective action. And it has nothing to do with geopolitical interests. It has to do with finding the right tactic for the immediate grievances of the public. For instance, you know, when uh, Oyan Kazakhstan, the network of young Kazakh activists oppose the political system, political oppression in Kazakhstan, they are inspired by different protest movements around the world, but their grievance is against the 30 years of authoritarianism in Kazakhstan. We now have a new American administration, so I can't resist asking the questions, especially since it's hardly come up. And I remember very well 30 years ago when we went to Central Asia for the first time. It was in American military transport planes. I remember watching American parachutists coming down into fields in Kazakhstan. It was all very much a new frontier for the United States. And now the United States seems to be almost absent from the discussion there. Is there anything left for the US in in Central Asia or is it now a very much more local regional story? I think the time when US really mattered was fairly short in Central Asia and that's okay. The American influence is felt not through the government, but through soft power, what we call soft power. And the best that any administration can do in Central Asia is showing by example on how to deal with different political crises, uh, international issues based on universal values, as opposed to uh, coercion or undemocratic or nationalist agenda. And and that resonates. And, you know, there is a fair amount of Trump supporters and sympathizers across Eurasia. That's not a secret. But I think what the more organized civil society groups, usually urban-based civil society groups, are looking for is how the state engages with the population, with how the political leadership in the United States deals with humanitarian crisis around the world or crisis of democracy around the world. And that brings a lot more inspiration and you know, shows the, the significance of the U.S. example in places like Central Asia. So we are really, unfortunately, out of time, which I am um, really sad to say because this has been so interesting and just so wide ranging. And I feel like we could go deeper onto so much, so much of it that we haven't. So just I want to say, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And for more timely insights, uh, you can follow Erica and her work. She's on Twitter at Erica Marat. She also is an editor of of a special issue on justice, crime, and citizenship in Eurasia of the journal Europe-Asia Studies, the current issue. So I recommend you check that out for a series of really quite interesting articles uh, on some of the topics that we've been discussing. I definitely second that. And uh, for Crisis Group's own analysis of Central Asia, just go to our website, 
crisisgroup.org and you'll find that there are Central Asia pages that are all from all over the ex-Soviet space and uh, do take a look. You can follow Crisis Group at us on Twitter. Uh, crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope and I'm at Olya Olaker with a Y. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram where we are all at Crisis Group. And as ever, we love to see you tweet about what you like or you don't like in our podcast and we will pay attention to any suggestions and if you're listening through iTunes, we'd love it if you give us a rating and a little review. War and Peace is a partner in the network of podcasts focused on Europe. Check out Europod to listen to some of the others. And as we go, we'd just uh, like to give you a big thank you to our producer, Bull Media, and also to our coordinator, Rebecca Serion Asifar, who makes sure that we're fully prepared for each episode. Our biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners, and we can't wait to be chatting with you again in two weeks. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.